Uh, first scripture reading is from Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14. Isaiah 7. Child. 
and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we uh, sang that we are people who are word, so we pray that as we hear it preached, that you would cause us with a whole heart to seek to know and to recognise your grace at work in our lives and proclaimed here also in this passage of Scripture, to be reminded of the promises that we read there, but not only to be reminded of them, Father, also that we might take those promises, embrace them, and also plead them, that we would uh, seek your face on the basis of those promises and seek your help on that basis. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, it's not uh, uncommon to be involved in a car accident, and uh, perhaps many of the adults here have found themselves in that situation at one time or another, and found yourselves also in a situation where you're either called upon to be a witness to an accident that you've seen, involved in an accident and seeking for some witnesses. And when you look for witnesses, you hope that you're going to find reliable ones. You might uh, hesitate to enlist that drug or alcohol adult street person leaning against the wall nearby. You might hesitate to ask a child who happens to be going past on the footpath on his scooter or looking over the fence in his front yard. You look for someone you think is going to be a reliable witness. Why then did the Lord choose shepherds as his witnesses? And to what exactly were they called two witness? Two things, two points. First of all, the incarnation is about God's glory. And secondly, the incarnation is about God's peace. Two things that the shepherds were called upon to witness to, the glory of God, as uh, seen in the incarnation of Christ, and also the peace of God that comes from that. In the first place, then, I want to uh, point out and draw to your attention here the, the emphasis in this passage on the glory of God. This passage is definitely not about the glory of man, what is uh, all too often a secular emphasis in the pagan uh, festival season, the emphasis on man. It is not about the glory of shepherds or the glory of wise men or any such, but it is about the glory of the God of heaven and earth. The shepherds themselves were doing uh, nothing particularly uh, interesting at the time, other than looking after a bunch of sheep. But what came to them, what they saw, was in some way the glory of the Lord shining all around them. Not their own glory again, but the glory of the Lord and an angel of the Lord who stood before them, as verse 9 says. And before long, it was uh, not just the 
the glory of that the Lord and the glory of one angel reflecting the glory of the Lord, but we'll see a massive army of angels there as we read in verse 13. But none of them, none of those angels were there to draw attention to themselves either, to oppose Christmas card companies or Christmas tree decorations. What is it they shout? They shout about the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest, verse 14. Highest praises to God from the highest place, heaven. And then at the end of this story, where we find what do we find the shepherds doing in verse 20? We find again, copying the angels, giving glory to God, glorifying and praising God for all that they have heard and seen. That all the glory goes to God is also seen in another way by his choice of witnesses. And uh, he didn't choose for witnesses the high and the mighty, an emperor or a president or a pope, or a Prime Minister, but those who were humble and lowly, those who were at the bottom of the social ladder in Jewish society or towards it, he chose, of course, Mary and Joseph, but they were not high and mighty people. But here we're looking at how he chose for that purpose also the shepherds. And, of course, even the wise men from the East, though in their own circles they were perhaps uh, fairly high up, as far as the Jews were concerned, they were Gentiles to be looked down on and despised. As shepherds were also despised. They were considered uh, dishonest and unreliable. They were, in fact, not allowed to testify in the Jewish court system. That's how unreliable and dishonest they were considered. And here God chooses these very people as his witnesses to testify. They were looked down on because they were very often Sabbath breakers, working on the Sabbath as far as the Jews were concerned. Uh, they were men who preferred to live their life out in the fields rather than to be in the places where they could regularly attend the synagogues or go to the temple and take part in the required observances and rituals and so forth. But God chose such people who were humble and despised those who were nobodies as far as the society was concerned, those who would simply give glory to him uh, rather than trying to grab some glory and some attention for themselves, those who were not too proud to see their need for him, their dependence on him, and he made them his witnesses to be a part of spreading that word of the incarnation of Christ and what it meant. And that's exactly what they did, to the praise and glory of God. Making God's glory and strength stand out all the more by this contrast between the glory of God and the lowliness of the witnesses. The, the glory and strength of God standing out all the more that he could use, through his power, he could use that which was so weak and despised and make it part of a message that would eventually turn the whole world upside down. Well, we'd be talking about God getting the glory and not man, but for what precisely does God get the glory here? Why is it that the angels and the shepherds are glorifying 
and praising God for what they've been told. Clearly it must have been a great thing because it's very rare that angels would appear at all throughout the scripture. It does happen, but it's not an everyday event that they appear before men. And even more rare that they would appear in such a, a massive, massive numbers, in such a, a massive host or army to join with men in praising God. And it must have been very important because the shepherds make uh, such haste. They clearly understand that this is very, very significant. Well, they're praising God for what he had done on earth, sending the Saviour and bringing peace. Birth of the baby in the manger that uh, led to the appearance of this great choir. They're definitely praising God and giving Him glory for that. But it's also what lies behind that that leads to the glory of God, not just the event itself. For behind this event lies the majesty and the glory of God's nature, uh, His power, His grace, His mercy, and His love seen in this event. And the majesty of his word, which had so many promises that come to bear in this event, uh, so many ways in which this brings to fruition promises of the Old Testament, like the one we read from Isaiah 7, but there are many, many more. So there's also the glory of God's word and the promises coming to fruition here. And coming to fruition in such a way, uh, a revelation of God involving an infant in a manger. And the mystery and the greatness of God's wisdom in that, infinite wisdom, that God can come down and dwell with man in and through a helpless baby, a person who is both God and man. And uh, I dare say that the shepherds didn't understand a lot of that, some of it perhaps, but we certainly understand more, having read the whole of the Bible, and uh, what's explained about that in the New Testament as well as part of that, that uh, when the angels and men are praising God and giving him glory, though they may not have understood all of that, nevertheless, these are the, the glorious truths that stand behind this uh, event. But as I've indicated, the incarnation is not only about God's glory, it is also about his peace, uh, second and final point. Now, no doubt uh, for a <coughs> shepherd working in a field on the late shift in the middle of the night, for such a person out in the country, <coughs> this would have been a, uh, a frightening experience. But not frightening simply because the shepherds were a little more than superstitious peasants who were suddenly confronted with the supernatural, with things that... Uh, they would have regarded as the unknown. But frightening because this was an angel messenger and then soon a whole host of angels sent from the Holy God and speaking to these sinful men who they knew the way that they were regarded in society, no doubt, uh, though, that they were a despised class. And yet here is the Holy God having such close contact with them through these <coughs> angels. Even if this had been a, a group of, um, say, astronomers from the local university who'd gone out in the fields at night and they were doing 
some observations on the stars and so forth, even if that had been the case, there would still have been just as much reason to be afraid for a sinner to receive messages that way from the Holy God. However, the angel speaking on the Lord's behalf sets that fear to rest. Do not be afraid, he says. And it's not that they don't have good reason to be afraid, if they look at themselves as sinners, but rather because God was doing something great and definitive to answer or to solve that problem of sin through the sending of his Son. And far from terror, this, as the angels make clear, and again, it's unlikely that the shepherds knew a lot about what was involved in that, but this is why the angel proclaims this as such a cause of great joy. This is why it is described here as good news, verse 10. This is the, another way of saying the gospel. That's what the word means, good news. The good news is that on that day, in the city of David, according to all those many Old Testament, those ancient Old Testament promises, the greater descendant of David was born the Saviour, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. That's the term, those are the terms that are used for him. Born to save his people from their sins. Hence, Saviour. Hence the name Jesus. Born as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, their great prophet, priest, and king. Their great prophet come as the great revealer of God. The great sacrifice, the Lord Jesus coming as high priest, offering himself. The great intercessor and the great king and ruler. He is the Lord. God, in other words, taking on human flesh. And uh, I'd like you to note that the word that Luke uses for the Lord Jesus here, uh, the word Lord, or kurios, uh, this was the word that Luke had also used in verses 9 and 15 as uh, a word to describe Yahweh. So in those other verses just before this, he's using the term Lord to refer to the living God. It is in the context here a divine title, and here he applies that to the Lord Jesus. But then ultimately we have to think the same way about him being called Saviour. In the Old Testament, it is uh, God himself ultimately who is the Saviour of his people. He is the God of our salvation. He is the Saviour God. Psalm 79, verse 9, and Isaiah 45, verse 15. And that's the Old Testament background to this terminology applied to Christ. Micah 5, verse 2, similarly uh, prophesies that the Eternal One would come from Bethlehem to be ruler in Israel, king and lord. And here he is in a manger, a news that brings great joy. 
Now, a fact that he was found in a manger, clothed in human, indeed in infant flesh, shows that this good news was also news of humiliation. A state of humiliation in which the eternal second person was clothed with weak human flesh, clothed with infant flesh, helpless infant flesh, needing to be fed and changed and taught and cared for and so forth. <coughs> Born, as I've already indicated, to a peasant mother, more or less, a peasant lower, sort of the lower class in that society, so to speak, uh, a foster father likewise, and not born to royalty, and born in a manger, in an inn, not in a palace, and witnessed by lowly shepherds, not by the rich and famous, not by the powerful Jewish leaders at that point. And the angel tells the shepherds in this connection that they will find him this way as a sign. And this term, sign, as used here, it doesn't just mean that this is a sign to help you locate the right baby when you go to Bethlehem. Maybe other babies born around that time. You've got to make sure you find the right one. Here's the sign to help you do so. Not just that. And not just a sign to back up the truth of what the angels have said so that when the shepherds arrive in Bethlehem, they find things exactly as the angels said and say, well, that's an extra verification of what the angels have said. Not just that but a sign of the nature of God's saving work. Uh, a sign that sin was going to be dealt with by the Saviour taking its consequences upon himself for us and on our behalf. Uh, taking on the weakness and the suffering and the humiliation and later on in his life, at the end, the death and the hell that would otherwise be our lot due to the fall. This is the great wonder and mystery that causes the angelic army to come not in war, which is what sinners deserve in themselves, but to come with a song proclaiming peace and joy. But peace uh, for whom and of what kind? Many think that Christ came to set an example of peace, equality, and brotherhood, the brotherhood of man, and goodwill to everybody. And that's the kind of thing you often hear in this uh, festival season from our culture, this idea of uh, goodwill around for everybody. And God is then pictured not so much as proclaiming peace on the human race, as setting an example that will enable men to make their own peace. Well, they haven't exactly done a good job of that to this point. Others do correctly see God as offering peace between himself and sinners, but they see it as a kind of a hypothetical thing. That God loves the whole human race, they see it this way, that God loves the whole human race without exception, and therefore he sends his son to make them all savable and he makes peace then possible for them if only they believe of their own free will. If only they show goodwill towards God by believing in him, 
then he will do the same back to them. And uh, some translations uh, seem to reinforce that idea. Translation to verse 14. For example, one translation has it, and on earth, peace to men of good will. Men with whom, uh, who, who themselves are showing goodwill towards others and towards God. But the translation that we are using here has it much better, much more accurately. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Which is another way of saying, men on whom God has set his good pleasure. Interestingly, the Dead Sea Scrolls have uh, shown that this is an expression that was quite familiar to the Jews, as the uh, scrolls contain songs about the sons of his good pleasure, a term that meant the elect upon whom God had set his good pleasure. So God's peace rests on those who have been chosen according to his good pleasure, his free grace, the grace of election. Those who were chosen were Jews. <coughs> Jews first, as an elect race. Verse 10 says, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And uh, that word people that's used there, that expression, the people, this was a common biblical expression specifically for the people of Israel. But there is, of course, a new Israel, the elect remnant within Israel, combining with elect Gentiles, now grafted into that new Israel, and that ultimately includes us. So the peace on earth that is being talked about here is not that uh, world peace that you hear uh, talked about at uh, uh, beauty pageants and such things and various TV personalities who want to achieve uh, world peace in our lifetime uh, and they want to work towards that. This is a God-given and a Christ-wrought deliverance from sin and its consequences those consequences then replaced by the greatest spiritual freedom and the greatest spiritual blessings that go even beyond what we can imagine for all of those whom God had chosen, has chosen before time, and who therefore come to him through his Son in time. Though it is true to say that that peace will eventually uh, fill the whole world with whole new creation after the Lord Jesus returns. So that is the reason for the incarnation and that is also its outcome. And however much the shepherds understood of that, there is no doubt that uh, this explains their, their sense of wonder and their sense of urgency with whatever familiarity they had with the Old Testament that they at least understood some of those implications and they hurried off then to see the Christ child in verse, according to verse 16. And it is no wonder that they praised God on the basis of what they knew and it is no wonder that they witnessed also to what they had seen and heard. Verse 17, 
17, they witnessed of what they had seen and heard to Mary and to Joseph. And then also in verse 20, when they went back afterwards, they continued that witness through their praises and giving glory to God because of these things. And it is no wonder that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart so that she could later give witness to them as well. And it's, uh, it's generally believed that uh, Mary was one of those who witnessed especially to Luke that Luke, who hadn't been a first-hand witness of many of these things, these earlier events, that Luke uh, got his information by going around and talking to the witnesses. And uh, also that Luke, in talking to witnesses, uh, more often sought out the, the women in Jesus' life for getting a witness from them more than any of the other Gospel writers. So it appears that Luke has talked to Mary. There are some other reasons for saying that from the information that is only in Luke's Gospel and which would have come uh, most likely from Mary. So uh, Mary gave her witness then later and she gave that witness most likely to Luke and Luke then set that witness down along with the witness of many others in his Gospel and that witness went out into the whole world. That witness also of the shepherds came out to the whole world in that way and witnessed to the significance of these things as well, to the peace and to the glory of God who sent his Son into the world. May we then have the same uh, sense of wonder about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the same desire to tell others of that truth, to witness to the significance of this truth to the glory of God. And not just that we talk to people about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we set that in the whole context of the Gospel and all of the connected things that follow from that, the whole Gospel story of incarnation, cross and resurrection, ascension, heavenly accession or sitting of the Lord Jesus Christ where he acts as our intercessor, in heaven, and also his coming return at the end of time. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, fill us with the uh, wonder of things that we too would uh, treasure them in our hearts and ponder them. The truths about the eternal second person of the Trinity, your Son, that he should come to dwell among men, having taken on human flesh, the truth about his state of humiliation, as well as what came later, the exaltation, because you love us and have decided to rescue us. Father, will you fill us with gratitude that this led on to the cross? And so now we have peace. A peace that surpasses human understanding. And will you give us also a sense of urgency to respond with praise and glory and witness. The witness to, to you and to what you have done, that we may use what opportunities we have also during this holiday period to uh, tell others around us, neighbours and friends, relatives, 
tell others about what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen. Thank you.